Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham, Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Father in heaven, thankful for brothers like Matt who want to stand in the gap and want to give a voice to the voiceless. But Lord, that doesn't just stop with him. Um, Lord, you want that for all of us, your people. And so God, we, we pray for the holocaust of abortion that is going on in our country right now and the evils that are at the hands of so many people. Lord, many of them don't know or are hardened to what they are doing. But Lord, you are sovereign. You are in control. And we trust you. And we ask and we pray that you would move, that you would change the hearts of people, that you would open their eyes, not just to what they're doing, but who they're doing it to. And Lord, I pray just that you would use the crossing church in a mighty way to not just value life, but to champion it. And Lord, that we would be a people who are committed to coming before you, a holy God, but also a sovereign and providential God. Lord, I thank you for this little child that's staying with the Whitney's here this week. What a testimony to your grace. And I pray that you would draw that child to yourself and continue to well up a testimony for the fame of your name. Not Matt's, not Jess's, not the crossing, but for you. And Lord, as we transition and look at this great passage here today of your providence, God, I pray just that you would wash your church. That if there's people in here today that are hard-hearted towards you, that you would smash their hard hearts. Lord, that you would give life and life to the full. Lord, thanks for the opportunity that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. In your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. All right. Just a few months ago, my beautiful wife introduced me to something amazing. And that something is the sound of music. (laughs) Might be hard for you to believe, 
took me 33 years, but I finally saw the sound of music. And you better believe that the hills are alive in the Smith Hold with the sound of music. Holy cow, it's awesome. My youngest son, Solomon, or my oldest son, Solomon, he knows all the words to a lot of the songs. And it's great. We love it. Um, but the sound of music came to the Lincoln Center here a couple months ago. Yeah, it was awesome. And I brought Michelle to it, and it was incredible. The cast of characters, the orchestra in the pit, the scenes, the children, it was awesome. And afterwards, I was reflecting on it, and I was like, man, oh man, I've come a long way since I've met my wife, Michelle. She has given me an appreciation for the arts. And it's not just the arts of sports, and particularly hockey, um, but I do love uh, plays and shows. And when I come to a passage like Genesis, Genesis 24 today, I can't help but to read it like a play. I can't help to read it like the different characters that are in these different scenes and the conflict that arises. And is there going to be a resolution? And it's a great, great text for us. I would call it a literary masterpiece here in Genesis 24, and it's meant to be read that way. So it begs the question, as we transition from Abraham now to Isaac, how is God going to keep his promises? How is God going to keep his specific covenant promise that Abraham's seed will continue? We've seen that so far in the life of Isaac, that he was born in Abraham and Sarah's old age. And then God provided a substitute last week when we were in Genesis 22. And in Genesis 23, just real briefly, Sarah, she's dead. And Abraham, he's able to acquire a plot of land in the promised land, which is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to him. But more importantly, there's no matriarch in the nation of Israel. And so for us as readers, when we come to Genesis 24, it begs the question, how is this going to continue? How is God going to keep his covenant faithfulness? We learn in Genesis 25 that Isaac is now the age of 40 years old. So he's getting up there. So how is God going to do that? And that's what we're going to focus on here today. We're going to focus on because of God's covenant faithfulness, we can entrust ourselves to his providential care. His providential care. God's providence is one of the greatest doctrines that I've ever sunk my teeth into and that I've also rested my soul in. It's been a great comfort. It's been a great joy. But it also makes sense in a world that is so broken and that there's so much evil. Yes, God is sovereign. He is in control. But more than that, He's intimately involved in his creation, in the big things as well as the tiny things. And we're going to see that here in Genesis 24. So because of the Lord's covenant faithfulness, we must entrust ourselves to his providential care. I'm going to be doing something a little bit differently this morning with our text. Typically, I'll give you three points, maybe a little bit of illustration, explanation, and some application sprinkled in there. We're not going to do that this morning. This morning, we've got four scenes that we're going to walk through. Four scenes, and then I'm going to save the application 
towards the very end. So scene one, we've got Abraham and his servant. Verses one through 10. This is what Matt read. Abraham, he is uh, described as old. He's described as advanced in his years. That's a polite way of saying this is an old man. And uh, the Lord has blessed him, as we've seen over the last two months as we've walked through Genesis 12, now through 24. And like old people do, so I hear, they start thinking about their legacy. And so Abraham's wondering, what's going to happen next? And so he calls this faithful servant who does not have a name, we're never given his name, but he calls him. And he sends him on a mission. And this mission has two stipulations. You must find a wife who's not from the Canaanites, and Isaac is to remain in the land. Isaac is to remain in the promised land. And it begs the question, why? Why these two stipulations? It would have been pretty easy for Abraham to hand-select a daughter from the Canaanites. And Abraham, being a man of wealth, could have hand-selected a daughter for Isaac that came from wealth. And that would have secured his legacy in the land. But no, he didn't do that. And for the original audience of Genesis 24, which is the nation of Israel, they would have recognized that right away. Because the Israelites were not to intermarry with the Canaanites. It was strictly forbidden. One commentator said it best when he said, if Isaac is to inherit the land, then he must not marry among those who are destined to disinherit the land. So 40-year-old Isaac, he's to marry from Abraham's family, who is far away. But we find out at the end of Genesis 22 that Abraham's brother, Nahor, he has 12 children. And one of them had a daughter whose name was Rebekah. And so, Abraham sees this, puts the pieces together, and he says, in order for my offspring to continue, in order for my seed to go forth, my son Isaac must marry from my kin. And so he sends his servant off. He sends him on this mission. But before he does that, the servant raises this legitimate question. He says, okay, so old man Abe, say I go back there, find this gal, but she doesn't want to leave mama's nest. She doesn't want to leave mama's home cooking. Then what do I do? Do I, do I bring Isaac with me to mama's home cooking? And he says, no. No, Isaac is to stay in the land. Isaac actually never left the promised land. And by his very presence being in it was a reminder to Abraham of God's covenant faithfulness that he was going to bless him, he was going to make him a mighty nation, and he was going to give him this land. So, we see Abraham's response in verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read them again. And as we saw last week, let's look at this through the lens of a justified man and his faith. Abraham says in verses 6 and 7, 
or in verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. He will send his angel before you. And we're beginning to see glimpses of the providence of God that's going to be at work. So then, <laughs> we've got this uh, thigh oath thing that happens here where he's supposed to put his hand underneath Abraham's thigh. This is so strange. <laughs> it's like, what? what is the point of this? And I was thinking, we should bring this back. We should, we should bring this back to the crossing. Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be a great hit, especially among married couples. I think spouses, you, you got to do this. If you're going to make an oath, thigh it. Just put it right under there. No, let's not do that. Strange. This um, strange gesture was similar to maybe someone putting their hand on a Bible when they take an oath. A thigh was kind of the sacred spot of someone's body, and you don't really touch that, obviously. Um, But it meant business. So he's like, all right, I'm going to do this. Here we go. Weird. So servant does it, promises, makes an oath to his master, and then he gets ten camels. Ten camels, we find out later he gets a bunch of men and a bunch of choice gifts, and he sets off back to Abraham's homeland. And scene one comes to a close. And we actually don't come across Abraham again. We will see a transition from a narrator in the chapters to come, but this was the last time that we see Abraham in Genesis. So, he takes his camels, and he goes on a 400-plus mile trek back to Abraham's homeland. Commentators think it would take probably about a month to get back there. And we're given no detail about this whole month. And then we come to scene two. He's in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. He's in where Abraham's from. Specifically the city of Nahor, his brother. And the servant meets Rebekah. Scene two. The servant meets Rebekah. Look with me at verses 11 through 14. It says, And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So, this servant, he's had a month to think about his first move. Once he gets to the city and he's pretty strategic, he knows it's evening time and young women are going to come out and draw water. So he puts his camels down there. 
And he's not just strategic, but we also figure out that this servant is a man of prayer. Now, we're not exactly sure why, but I think it's a pretty good assumption that he's learned about God from his master, Abraham. He's seen how God has been faithful to his master, and so he prays. And he prays specifically not for himself, but for his master, and that God would show covenant faithfulness that God would show, as it says in the text, steadfast love. Hesed, if you're familiar with the Hebrew. And so, he puts out this test. He puts out this sign, the proverbial Gideon fleece. And he says, let the woman who I ask for a drink, not just offer me a drink, but wants to give a drink to my camels also. Let that be a sign that this is the one for Isaac. And so, here comes Rebecca, verse 15. And before the servant is able to finish his prayer, Rebecca comes on the scene. Before he even says, Amen, here she is. And the narrator cues us as the reader. The narrator lets us know right away, this is her. This is the one. Because she's described as Abraham's kin. She's described as one coming for water. But she's also described as young, attractive, and a virgin. We are to know, reading this, that this is the chosen one. That this is Rebecca. But the servant doesn't know that. And so, verse 17 He runs to meet her. He sees her and he goes after her. And he says, may I have some water? And Rebecca, she passed the test with flying colors. She says, Lord, my Lord, drink. And not just you, my camels also. (laughs) And what's interesting, it's kind of veiled in the text, but those, those uh, jars of water that Rebecca would have been carrying, she just has one, and they're about two or three gallons. So for her to dump those into the trough, enough for ten camels to drink, that would have been quite the work. She would have been going back and forth from the well to the trough, from the well to the trough, quite a bit. So we see Rebecca, she's not just young, attractive, a virgin. This girl is ready to get after it. She is not afraid of some hard work. And so, while she's doing this, the servant, he's sitting there in silence. And he's observing her. And he's wondering, is this of the Lord? Is this the one that I specifically prayed for? And God, are you answering my prayer? And so, he rewards her for her hospitality. He gives her some bracelets, some earrings, Good to know if you have young women, give them jewelry. Good for me to know as we have a daughter coming next month. Give her jewelry. And then he proposes two questions. He says, please tell me whose daughter you are. And is there room at your house? And then it all comes clear to the servant. She's from Abraham's kin. She's got to be the one he not only came for, but that he specifically prayed for. And yes, we've got room for you, your homies, and your camels at our house. And look with me at how the servant responds in verses 26 and 27. 
The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. This text is supposed to hearken back to Genesis chapter 12, when God not only calls Abraham, but he says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is being faithful to his covenant that he made with Abraham, and it's starting to come together. And we, as the reader, are starting to see this. We're starting to see God's providential hand at work. And so scene two comes to a close. But it begs the question, will Rebecca's family let her go? Will Rebecca be willing to go with this stranger that she just met to a far-off land to marry another stranger? And the tension's rising. So scene two comes to a close. Scene three... We've got the servant and Rebecca's family. This is the largest chunk, verses 29 through 61. And here, right at the very beginning of scene three, we're introduced to a new character, Laban. Laban's going to be an interesting character in the chapters and weeks to come that we're going to see. And Laban, not so sure about this guy. He's a little greedy. He sees the gifts that Rebecca had received doesn't even ask her, and just immediately goes to the man. And he welcomes him with open arms. Welcome. Come to my house. Here is a place for your camels. Here's water for your dirty feet. And how about you come in and eat a fine meal? Laban. He's an interesting one. He's the main character here in Rebecca's family. Mom and pops, they're mentioned But Laban is always mentioned first. And so we are to focus on Laban here. And I don't think it's for right now in our story, but I think it's for the story in the weeks to come when we see Laban's role with Leah and Rachel. So the servant, he's offered this fine meal from Laban. And then he's like, I'm not touching any of this until I come to share what I came for. I've come a long way. It's been a month. Let me tell you, about this. And so he proceeds to share, and he shares specifically about his conversation with Abraham that we saw, and he also shares about what took place with Rebecca. But what's different in this section of the text is that there's a specific focus on prosperity, on success. Look with me at verse 35. When he describes Abraham, he doesn't describe him as an old man, as an old bag, worried about his legacy. No, he describes him as a man of great wealth, a man who has financial prosperity. And then in verse 40, he says that Abraham sent him and the Lord will go before him via the angel to prosper your way. And then in verse 42, he reaccounts the prayer and says, Now, if you are prospering the way that I shall go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. 
And then in verse 44, he says, And who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. And lastly, in verse 48, as you're still looking down there, Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has led me in the right way. And so what not only the servant is doing, but what the author of Genesis 24 is doing is showing that based on the Lord's prosperity of the servant, it's showing the Lord's providence. It's showing what the Lord wants. And so then, the servant, he says to them in verse 49, he says, Now then, if you're going to show me steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And basically, what he's saying here is the Lord has shown me steadfast love and faithfulness. I have divine hesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, but now will I have humid, steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's the reasons why I believe the Lord has not only prospered me, but specifically led me to Rebecca. And it begs the question, what are they going to say? Are they going to believe it? Are they going to take the bait? This isn't a sales pitch. This isn't, you have to do this to meet some great need. No, he's pointing them to the Lord's hand. And then in verse 50, of course, of course, Laban, Bethuel, her father, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. As the Lord has spoken. So the servant he exhales. Whew. Mission accomplished. We did it. And he bows his head and he worships the Lord. But what's interesting is that the Lord has spoken. The Lord didn't say anything here verbally. The Lord said everything here through the course of events. This is God's providence. This is his leading in this particular situation. So the servant, let's feast. He brings out more choice gifts. He pays the bride price. And Rebecca gears up, ready to go. Mission accomplished. So we think. But then the next morning, Mama Bird and Laban, they get cold feet. They say, let her stay ten more days. And it's not exactly clear why they get cold feet. Why 10 days? Maybe Laban in his greed would have 10 more days to figure out how to swindle some more money out of the servant. Or maybe Mama Bird just isn't ready for her baby bird to leave the nest. And she wants to cherish 10 more days with her. We're not really sure. And so the uh, servant pleads with them in verse 56 do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they reply, let us call the young woman and ask her. Tensions rising. It's now in Rebecca's court, the proverbial ball. 
Is she going to get cold feet too? No, she doesn't. And echoing Abraham's call out of this land to go to an unknown place, she does as well. She responds to the Lord and says, I will go. I will go. And so they release her from the nest. She's free to go off to a distant, unknown land to marry a stranger. And they leave her with a blessing there in verse 60. And it says, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And what the narrator is doing here, it's pointing us as the reader back to Genesis 22. You know, what we hit on last week. When God provided the substitute, there was a blessing that came from God to Abraham about Isaac. In 22.17, there's similar language here. It says, I will surely bless you and surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed. And so what the narrator's doing here that we are to see is that he's connecting Isaac to Rebecca before they even meet. And so they take off back to, back to Canaan. And it begs the question, is Isaac going to accept Rebecca? Is Isaac going to see this and be like, oh yeah, I want her? And Scene three comes to a close as they take off on this month-long, 400-mile trek back home. So, scene four, we made it. This is the best part. I love it. It's so good. So, Isaac, he's one of the main characters in this story, but he doesn't show up until the very end. And like all good single men waiting for a wife, look what he's doing. He's meditating in a field. Yep. Note that, single man. So, here's Isaac doing his meditation thing. And he lifts his eyes and he looks in the distance and he sees this caravan of camels coming. And he makes it out. And he starts walking towards the camels. And in the same language, Rebecca lifts up her eyes and sees someone walking towards them. She slips off her camel and says to the servant, who is that man walking towards us? And the servant, oh, he sees the whole thing. He says, it is my master. And it's awesome. Rebecca, she veils herself as a typical virgin, ready to meet her groom. <laughs> and then Isaac, Rebecca meet. The servant fills in all the details of God's providential hand that has brought Rebecca to this scene, to this moment. And he's comforted. And he takes Rebecca into his tent, into his mother's tent, consummates the marriage and the curtain falls. 
The scene is over. The crowd goes wild, standing ovation, no encore needed. Unbelievable. This is a great story, guys. I, I have loved unpacking this, if you can't tell. <laughs> but I think there's some implications for us, and it's helpful to think through the implications when we look through the grid of who the primary audience is that Genesis 24 was written to. Let me remind you, Moses wrote it to the nation of Israel. And they would have noticed right away that God is doing something. God is providing a new matriarch for the nation of Israel. If there is no Rebecca, there's no Israel. If Rebecca didn't choose to go, if her family didn't release her, if the servant didn't put his hand underneath the man's thigh and go on the mission, there'd be no Israel. So God, in his covenant faithfulness, is providentially moving so that his people will entrust themselves to him. And similarly, for us, as we read this text as the people of God, as not the nation of Israel, but true Israel united to Christ, we are to read this and see that God's redemptive story is continuing. Because centuries later, another virgin would be sent to carry a seed. Another virgin would get a message from a servant, Gabriel, the angel, and he says, You have a seed. You will have a son. His name will Jesus, his name will be Jesus and he will be great. He will reign over the house of Jacob, aka Israel, forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so we are to draw the connections here. God is to preserve his covenant faithfulness through this seed through the seed that goes not just back to Isaac and Rebekah or not just back to Abraham, but goes all the way back to the garden. When Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent crusher was promised. And this is what God's doing here. He's preserving the seed of the offspring. And then the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, he draws this connection directly to Christ. He says in Galatians 3.16 that this promise wasn't to the offsprings of Abraham. It's to the offspring, referring to one, that is, to Christ. And then he says at the very end of chapter 3, and if you are in Christ, you are heirs according to the promise. The promise to bless the nations was to come through Jesus. And the question is, how do we get that blessing? How do we get that blessing? And it's quite simple. Maybe simpler than you really think. You entrust yourself to God. You entrust yourself to his providential care. To entrust oneself is to put your life into their hands. And that's what we do when we come to faith. That's what we do when we see that we need a Savior because of our sin and rebellion. And on that rugged cross... He's cared for us. He's loved us. And we are to respond by entrusting our lives to him. 
And we are heirs according to the promise. So let me give you some real specific applications as we close here. It'd be pretty easy to read this text and tell you to be like one of the characters in the story. Maybe you should be like, I don't know, the servant who, man, he's a man of prayer. He's a faithful man of prayer. No, we shouldn't be like him. How about Rebecca? Look at her faith. Look at her faith to go. She's not afraid of a little hard work either. Maybe you should be like Rebecca. No. Abraham. Oh, I love this one. How about you arrange marriages for your children? You should be just like Abraham. Nope, not in our culture. That ain't happening. And Isaac, I love Isaac. You just got to get a wingman. You just got to get a wingman who's going to go find you a bride, and you're just hanging out, meditating in the field. Or how do you deal with bereavement? How do you deal with someone that you've lost? Find a wife. Obviously, that's the point of the text. No, that's not the point of this text. Some of those things might be good and helpful, but that's not why God gave us this text. God gave us his word so that we will entrust ourselves to this faithful God that has called us to himself. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things, good, bad, and ugly. He's in control of the big and small things in your life. So I think this text, as we look at God's providence, as we look at how big God is orchestrating all these events to accomplish his purposes, I really think this is a call to fight against fatalism. Now, what do I mean by that? Oftentimes, in maybe some of our circles of our Christian subculture, we come to the conclusion, well, if God is sovereign, then what does it really matter what I do? What does it really matter if I pray, if I make disciples, if this person comes to faith, like God's going to do it? No, that's not the proper response. And we see that in the servant as he prayed. He didn't just sit there and wait for Rebecca. No, he saw her and he ran to her. You see, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they coexist in the Bible. You are to be the means of grace in someone's life. Let me, let me illustrate this. I wasn't going to share this, but um, my own love story, when I proposed to my bride, it was, it was going to be so awesome. I get this awesome ring. I get our friends and family together. I send a photographer up the mountain with some flowers, put it here. We'll be there about this time. And it's going perfect. And we're hiking up that mountain. She's got no idea what's going, what's, what's coming. And so we make our way over to the flowers. We start to hear the shutter. And so I sit down and I whisper sweet everything's to her. And then I stand up. I say, Michelle Marie, I love you. First time I ever told her. I get down on one knee. Will you marry me? And she's just like, 
gets better. <laughs> Would you hate it if I said, let's wait? And I'm like, what? <laughs> yes! Do you have any idea how much work I put into this? No, I didn't say that right then, but that's what I was thinking. Oh my gosh. And if I had a fatalistic perspective, oh yeah, sure, let's just wait. Let's let God be God. He's sovereign. He's in control. You think that's how I responded? No, it's not. She's blushing back there. Oh my gosh. So I stand up. Shutter stops. (laughs) So brutal. And I'm like... Hey, babe, what's going on? (laughs) And I began to talk to her. And the Lord gave me peace at that moment, not anger, (laughs) not righteous anger. (laughs) And so I began to unpack with her what she was feeling, why she was so overwhelmed. And and what I came to find out was that (laughs) it was very unexpected that I was going to propose not only that day, but at that time. And the, the weight of everything and such a massive decision hit her all at once. And she just wasn't ready. And so we talked through it. And it took about 10 minutes. And then she was like, fine, just ask me again. <laughs> so I'm like, shutter begins. <laughs> and she said, yes. <laughs> oh, man, it was awesome. And I really believe through the events of my life and her life that God had providentially brought us together. But I didn't let fatalism set in right then and there. No, as we were talking, I prayed and I asked the Lord, hey, would you give me wisdom? So fatalism, we have to fight against that. And one way in particular is we as pastors, we're hoping and we're praying that every single person in the Crossing Church makes one disciple this year. Makes one disciple. Maybe this is the first time you've heard of it, or maybe this is the multiple time that you've heard of it. But do you know who that disciple is? Have you identified that person? And not only have you identified, but what are some active steps that you're responsible for to bring this person, not to faith, but into Christian community? And for them to... See and observe not only the goodness of God through the cross, through Jesus, but also through his people. So do you know who that disciple is? Have you identified them? Have you brought them into community? Have you shared the gospel with them? It's a process. We're not expecting it to happen tomorrow. Maybe. That'd be awesome. But join us. Join us as we pray. Join us as we don't take this fatalistic perspective. Oh, God's going to be God and he'll do his thing. No, join us in prayer for that. Last application is this. Random happenstance has no place in the Christian's worldview. Random happenstance. You know, this whole idea of good luck versus bad luck. It's all by chance. No, the Bible makes pretty clear that The rolling of the dice, a.k.a. the casting of the lots, it falls in the the hand of the Lord. Proverbs 16.33. There's no place for luck. I was talking with Cole right before the sermon, and he he gave me a great quote. He said, uh, I don't believe in luck. I believe in the providence of God. David Crockett. 
Write that one down. No. When you embrace this perspective that God is not only sovereign, but He's providentially working in all of our lives for our good, but also to accomplish His purposes, it brings about an element of faith. An element of faith. This this idea that the biggest things that are going on in your life, which some of them are probably pretty massive, whether it's something that you're dealing health-wise, your children, your job, your very livelihood, but even to the tiniest things in your life. These things are not bigger than the God that you believe in. And the God that we believe in is sovereignly in control over all these things. And He's orchestrating events that we can't see, but we can entrust ourselves to this faithful God who has proved His faithfulness time and time again through His Word, but chiefly through His Son, Jesus. And that's the God that we not only worship, that we not only gather together to sing songs to, but that we serve day in and day out in our lives. Entrust means to put your life into someone else's care. Corey Ten Boom, she's a famous evangelist who also hid a lot of Jews during the Holocaust. She said this. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. Let us trust this engineer who is providentially working in our lives to draw not only us to himself, but a people to himself that one day we all together will worship him in the new creation. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for an encouraging morning in your word. We thank you how you work. We thank you for the highs, the lows, the big things, the little things in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. I pray by your spirit, by your word, by your community, the means of grace that you've given us, that we would entrust ourselves to your care. Thank you for your faithfulness. Even when we're faithless, Lord, you remain faithful. And you're a God that we serve, we love, and we trust. And Lord, I pray that we would be reminded, even here this week, but not just this week, that you are a faithful God. And would you continue to remind us of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that we trust ourselves trust in the Lord at all times, that we would lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you, and you will providentially direct our steps. In Jesus' name, amen.